0: Hello and welcome to Victory Points. I'm Becca Scott and
1: I'm Jake Michaels.
0: And this is a podcast about people who love tabletop games interviewing other people who love tabletop games about the tabletop games they love. <gasps> but not today because we have a very, 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 very special guest. Our guest today is Meredith Levine. Meredith is a anthropologist. What is that? you ask? exactly what the portmanteau sounds like. She helps brands and media companies create better strategies for building and sustaining fandoms. Most recently for theorist media, Meredith worked at Troika, which is a brand experience and design company, on a foundational research study to help understand the universal pillars of the fan experience, no matter what someone is a fan of, and the differentiating markers that make communities and fans (laughs) extinct, distinct, What a this is all about destroying fans. She got her start working in the intersection of online video and fandom while well, with the firm ZEFR or Zephyr? Zephyr and has her master's from UCLA in critical media studies with an emphasis in fan studies. This is the longest bio I've read. You are so accomplished. I also yeah. gather from Meredith's Twitter that she is also a fan of a girl Edubs Elizabeth Warren Silver so Kindred Spirits <laughs> Meredith welcome thank you thank, thank you for having me <laughs> I love Elizabeth Warren Th- that's what I'm really going to talk to you about for an hour right it's, it's all just going to be I
2: stan I stan
1: <laughs> in your fandom absolutely
2: oh it is a fandom it is yeah. a fandom oh, I mean wow. it's like the way that people treat it I would say that we are entering into like the next 18 months of political fandom. fandom. Wow, I did buy a t-shirt already that says, Warren has a plan for that.
0: Uh, But I have a plan for this episode, and that is to (laughs) not do what we normally do, which is talk about you and then talk about the games you love. Well, well, I guess we will do those things. But we're mostly going to talk about your super, super interesting research. So to kick it off, how do you define anthropologist in a little more elaborate way than
2: Um, Well, I think it has to do with what I study and the methodologies that I use, namely anthropological research methods. And uh, my preferred methodology is netnography, which is a qualitative social listening approach. So a lot of brands and media companies will have social listening software. And a lot of that, a lot of what that tells people is who's talking, how many, like how many uses of a hashtag were there and what are the related interest groups and things like that. But a lot of that is quantitative data. As opposed to reading into the cultural contexts of what's happening on social media so just and strictly, like, strictly
1: aggregating like the numbers as opposed to you guys kind of reading into what those right okay. because
2: everything exists in a cultural context mm-hmm. and so while you can have numbers numbers in the absence of context are reasonably meaningless numbers sure and sure. so understanding the social landscape the cultures and norms of platforms the cultures and norms of fandoms and the uh the footprints that fans leave behind when they are fans on the internet that being said i've done a bunch of other methodologies we've done things like uh when i was on the research study we did a lot of things like digital ethnography which is a lot of confessional work um ethnography is generally like a participant observation style research method we did a big 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 quantitative survey um, big by meaning eight thousand participants with a representative sample over the united states and Uh, Our opening question got over 35,000 unique responses of what do you consider yourself to be a fan of. Um, And so I've done a bunch of other methodologies, but my preferred is really understanding the contexts of the footprints we leave behind on the internet. Wow. Okay. So you take these
0: large groups
2: of numbers and you turn them into something
0: meaningful for the brand who's gathered those numbers. Or
2: rather, I mean, if you're triangulating data in a way that I think is most useful, you are finding those user stories and understanding that culture and then using other methodologies to follow up with it to be like, oh, I'm seeing this pattern online. Are these people small and loud or is this how everybody feels?
1: So what's an example of that? Like what's a methodology you would follow?
2: Um, So it would be something like, um, not that I've done this as a study, but if if I were to do this as a study... Um, It would be, hypothetically, say there's a fandom that is loud and angry about a casting decision.
1: Okay, yeah, great. Um, Great
0: example. Or a finale.
2: Or a finale (laughs) or something. Um, If the internet conversation is like, hey, we're loud and angry about this, you'd want to pull a sample of people who are aware and unaware of of the property or whatever it is and ask about it and then find a, usually brands will have in-house sample. Um, of their customer base or their audience already and then you'd pull that audience because the people who are talking on the internet
1: Aren't necessarily the representative of who they're buying right already. it
2: represents the sample of people who are on the internet and leaving big loud footprints right. But that's not necessarily how everyone feels and so it's important to get what isn't being said as opposed to what is being said Because if all of the research were based on the footprints that people leave behind it paints a really terrible picture for a lot of audiences and a lot of fandoms that isn't necessarily true about the fandom writ large it's just true about emotional moments that people who have large platforms get emotional about yeah, which isn't to say their feelings aren't valid it's just to say that they're it's loud not, they're loud <laughs> yeah what do the quiet ones want what do the quiet <laughs> ones can't change want change your
0: strategy just based on the loud people right yeah. what do the quiet ones want
2: and ooh it sounds um, like a
0: vampire movie <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, yeah. So that, that's kind of about the methodologies that I use. I mean, I have used analytics. I've, do, I've done a lot of things, but the ones I like are finding those stories and finding those footprints and finding that nuance. And in an ideal world, being able to follow up with those people and ask them about stuff. So Oh, go ahead. I wanted to know how big a field
0: of study this is in academia. Is fan studies a new and emerging thing? Are you one of the few that's pioneering this type of research? And of course, more will come.
2: Uh, no, this is this is a reasonably. I mean, not old like the way that like art history is old. Um, but like, <laughs> uh, like art history has been around as long as there's been art. But fan studies has been around roughly since about 1992 when two different books were published. One was called Textual Poachers, and the other one was called Enterprising Women. Textual Poachers was about fandom and remix culture, and Enterprising Women was studying the female contributions to the Star Trek fandom in the 70s and 80s. Wow. Yeah. And so both of those books were published academically in 1992, and that kind of kicked off the academic discipline. That being said, it's oftentimes coursework, um, not necessarily like majors. Um, But one of the professors who pioneered this field teaches at USC. Um, His name is Henry Jenkins, and his work has, has been largely credited, although not, he's not like the only person who's pioneered this field, but his work is credited oftentimes as being some of the seminal work in fan studies. and. So, this so is, it's, it's, it's been around for a while. I'm not the first person. Deal. I'm not the first person to use this job title. Uh, I won't be the last person to use this job title. And as for how we are employed and what we do, um, there are small groups of fandom professionals across the country who do everything from um, from deep dives into specific fandoms before for acquisition and content development, or for marketing, or for impact studies at the tail end of those things so
1: do you guys all yeah. come from the same realm of anth- from an anthropological standpoint
2: no right? um, in Cause... fact anthropology the anthropological research methodologies that I use now aren't my academic discipline They're stuff I picked up on the job in traditional market research on this study working underneath the tutelage of a woman named Susan Kresnica who's done a lot of entertainment market research um, but some people do have anthropological backgrounds academically. A lot of people have media studies backgrounds in some capacity or another, um, and the anthropological yeah. methodologies that you have picked up
0: are—is this um, the sort of like survey type of thing, or is it the interpretation of that survey?
2: Um, yes, and I mean surveys. Surveys have been around for a very long time. Focus groups are a traditional market research method that. Um, I guess qualifies anthropology also a little bit. A lot of anthropology, though, is in field doing participant observation, of like watching um, watching people in their environments. Uh, so netnography as a method um, was Watch largely the- pioneered and written by a professor at USC called Rob Cozanets, who has written an entire book on the subject. Um, but it's whatever method is best suited to answer. It's whatever methods, plural, ideally if you're doing custom research, are best suited for answering the questions that are being asked. Oftentimes the questions that I get asked are about like influencers and um, and social media presences and algorithms and things like that. So a lot of what I do is about internet footprints, but there are many other people who study all sorts of other elements and work in other elements of fandom, like making uh, franchises out of IP and how do you create Texts. I have a friend in the industry who um, her company, Chaotic Good, does a lot of like franchise building work. Um, there are firms, one called Fanthropology, uh, who does a lot of like deep dives into individual and specific fandoms on behalf of brands. So there are a few in but the But yours field. is more widespread. I'm a little bit more of a gun for hire um, (laughs) and then necessarily like fixed in one particular kind of problem solving or one particular business model. Okay, now I wanna get
0: into influencers a little bit later but let's talk about what you found in that study or just just like little examples that you're allowed to share about
2: the types of answers people give when asked what are you a fan of so most people are most in the united states this is a national like the research happened conduct the research we conducted was with people in the united states so i can't really speak in an expert sort of way about international markets that being said there's international fandom tons of it and there's like cross and multinational fandom like k-pop has a huge presence in the united states now and so does anime and stuff like that mm. um but um is it a defining factor of a fan that you say woot when <laughs> says something that you know that, that emotional enthusiasm is one of those defining factors um and like feeling really excited about it and using it as a point to express and connect um but in the united states most people are a fan of something or at least would consider themselves to be a fan of something. Now, when we met, we sh- I, we've we shouted out the Magic Castle
0: on this podcast before, and we'll do it again, we met at the Magic Castle. Woot. I just started, woot. <laughs> 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 yep, it goes on your survey response, question number one. Um, but I was there with my sister-in-law, sister-in-law, and she was
2: saying, I don't think I'm really a fan of something. Is she very much an outlier? Some people are not. About 22-ish percent of people in the United States don't consider themselves to be a fan of anything. And it's sad. It's deeply sad. Is that because
1: the word fan means something different to them?
2: It can be because the word fan – we didn't study that negative space, but I have a few hunches. One is that the word fan means something to them – such, such that in way. a different way, like
1: they need to be a flag waving right. about that thing. Like yeah.
2: they like, picture, I'm not a picture liberal, someone, yeah. but
0: I love the idea of universal health care.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or like, um, or some people, for some people, they don't need more. There isn't that hunger and there that craving. There, they're perfectly satisfied with. I
1: am entertained what is by there. this. Sure, right. Sure, like yeah. this, this was nice. It suffices.
2: This was nice. The end. I feel full. Um, <laughs> as opposed to no more please like I, I want to know stop. everything about yeah, this thing yeah. Like people must know this is my favorite and so I must have all the merch <laughs> right or like I need to know every single detail ever or this sparks off so much creativity in my mind that I'm going to cosplay this or mash yeah. it up with my other favorite thing or imagine everybody as sports team people or whatever it's going to be <laughs> um, you know whatever that imagination is going to take them wherever that's going to take them There are all sorts of ways to do this. But yeah, I about some people are not fans, and maybe that's because the word fan has been pathologized to be a little bit synonymous with crazy, which is not the case. Well, is Um, it
1: it's is does it come from fanatic?
2: It does come from the word fanatic. Yeah, which isn't Mm. generally a great term. (laughs) Right. 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 I mean, that word has a lot of history. And sometimes it's you just have a picture in your mind of like what a fan is and like sleeping for 12 hours in a queue for Hall H and there are some people are just like I would never do that. Yeah. And so there's this this distance happening, but for a lot of people they consider themselves to be a fan of something or multiple things.
1: Yeah, I guess it is your it's your degree of what you consider fandom too, right? Cuz I mean there's not a lot of things that I I consider myself Make a fan list. of a lot Make of things. Make your list go, Jake. I, I consider myself a fan of uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I consider myself a fan of Game of Thrones. I consider myself a fan Thank of Five Thirty Eight, but I wouldn't necessarily stand in line a for polling, any of those. A things. A political
0: tw- polling organization <laughs> is number three <laughs> on yeah. your list of phantoms.
1: I'm I'm looking around the room and I see podcasts. So that's what I just assumed. But like, I don't know if I'd stand in line for twelve hours for any of those things. But like, I still mm-hmm. I consider myself a fan. Of, but it is but I'm that's an what anti-fandom. the saying. It's varying right. degrees.
2: Yeah, there, I mean, and just because you wouldn't do a thing doesn't mean you love it any less or it isn't part of your identity in the same way. Right. Like, if I were to, I, I, I'm I, also one of those people who would not stand in line for 12 hours, but there's nothing wrong with people who do. Right, sure. And that doesn't mean I'm any less of a fan of the things that I mm-hmm. am a fan of. I'm a big Disney theme park fan. And um, we had a... a a
0: Diz-nerd, as she dubbed herself on the podcast a couple weeks ago.
2: Chelsea Schwartz. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you are a Diz-nerd. Yes. <laughs> um, and some people... Uh, yeah. And so I've been to three of the three of the parks and resorts. I haven't been to the Asia ones yet, but they're on the list. But again, even as a Disney theme park fan and an annual pass holder here, I don't stand in line for new things for an excessive right. amount of time. And- it's not how I express my fandom.
1: Right, it's, That's what I'm getting at. It's how you express your fandom Ooh. with is, is – is we all kind of do it in different ways. I also, like, I'm always curious about, like, how people experience their own fandom in terms of, like, Disney's a good example because Disney is a place where those people – a lot of people who are huge fans of it have experienced it almost a hundred times or, like, they go mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. So they're re-experiencing the same thing over and over, which is, I think a lot of fandom kind of centers on, right? Oh.
2: Yeah. so some, Yeah, because – a lot of people use it for um, for mood regulation and, like, a self-care element. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. some people, like, I'm sure you have that friend or are that friend who puts on reruns of Supernatural or Seinfeld sure. or Friends on in the background when you're doing other things. Parks the and Rec. Office, yeah. When you're doing other things, to have those familiar voices in your space to, because they feel like friends. Yeah, it's the they... blanket. Yeah. yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, there are oh. a lot of warm fuzzies there. <laughs> and so that's another thing that people way that people express fandom and and role that it serves in people's lives is to be there. To be there as as a stable thing in a world of instability.
0: Oh wow. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So one of the things you talk about is the shared values within fandoms. What does
2: that mean? Th- so well, there are a lot of fandoms that have a lot of different pockets of values, and you can see that with anything really, really big. There are some that are very, very cohesive in terms of belief systems and the ways that people want to see the world to change and wh- what they find good. One of my favorite examples, I have a few favorite examples of this, but Harry Potter is one of them. We're like <laughs> yeah, if absolutely. you see if you see a woman in her thirties wearing any kind of nerd march who has voted in every election that she's been eligible for, she's probably a Harry Potter fan. <laughs> wow, okay, yeah. Um, you described me, I'm in. <laughs> right, um, because it raised an entire generation, and it's a female fandom of a specific era. People are experiencing it now, but not quite in the same heat and fervor necessarily no, no, in, as far as all. like the culture is concerned. And for me, I still consider myself a Harry Potter fan despite not particularly enjoying the new canon. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still a Harry Potter fan. Why
1: do you consider it a female fandom?
2: Because it skews female.
1: Does it statistically? Yeah. Yes. I think I thought it did because I used to teach uh, a Harry Potter themed uh, theater class back in Portland. We taught it for 20 years because it never would not sell out. And I would say, I mean, in general theater classes, uh, there's more girls than boys. But that Harry Potter class, yeah, there was always more girls than boys for the most part.
2: Yeah. That was pretty crazy. Small well,
0: sample size, same result. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, young
2: young adult literature caters to a largely female audience because yeah. the they most can part. read and boys can't. <laughs> I am back a terrible scientist because I back just make statements that. and never back um, anything I, up. Like, why probably has to do with the shared values of transformation and learning and personal growth. I mean, I still read YA and I'm in my 30s mm-hmm. because the the story of like personal growth and transformation will will never stop being relevant in my life. Sure. And, like, puberty and high school, college age, like, when life just moves so quickly and everything changes so fast, that era is just a quintessential time for learning and change and growth. And so there's something there that just caters to people who are really interested in that character-driven arc Mm -hmm. as opposed to, like, plot-heavy action sequences where there's... Like lots of action and and stuff happening, that character driven arc of YA is often really appealing for people who are particularly interested in, in creating social change justice. and social justice. Yeah, wow. Okay, I have a very very dark example that
0: came up in the news a couple of weeks ago that I wonder if you could weigh in on through this lens. It was about Avengers Endgame and some horrible evil person online recut it, took out the women in minorities and posted it on YouTube and was like, here's how it should have been. What is wrong with that person? And why did their fandom drive them
2: to do this horrible thing? So from from where I sit, it's a horrible thing. But also there's if fandoms are places where people seek refuge to find like minded people. And if you are a person who grew up in an age which is not our age where people were persecuted for being nerds and geeks and they sought refuge in their comic book stores then it's it's that same it's that same thing that's happening politically where equality feels like a removal of rights or an invasion of spaces when really it's equality and they're not used to it
0: of of your level of privilege is not being changed other people are being elevated to that level but you feel like something's being. but you feel
2: like something's being changed Mm. especially if you were the person who sought refuge in your comic book store from from the cool popular kids or um or were shamed for what you like the thought of it mainstreaming at all let, and mainstreaming means, you know, it's finding a more general audience, including women and minorities. Yeah. Um, and also it negates it. I mean, part of that with me, I it would be remiss of me to not talk about Afrofuturism and black nerd culture that historically has been prevalent what? in nerd culture for a very long time, just not necessarily been like merged with with i'm about <laughs> well, to say something I'm about to say, something I'm about to say something particularly <laughs> offensive um we welcome but, that here <laughs> um but it hasn't traditionally been merged with like nerd gen x culture and was gen x the offensive part i can't believe you just. Said <laughs> how that? dare you yeah but i mean it out. was a little bit of ageism on my part but like there are <laughs> clear lines between you know millennials and Gen Z with regards to our our generational opinions on diversity and inclusion. And that starts to split, especially according to like if you see Pew Research or if you've seen some of the like ad research on um, that follows like I don't know if you saw the ad research about the Kaepernick Nike ad about where people get offended and based on age and and political affiliation and stuff like that. Yeah, but there's a lot of research around that ad, and so you can see a lot of these generational divides as well. well
1: that's true for a lot of social progress, isn't it? Like, generationally, they're just—everybody's slow on the uptick on things in terms of, like— you know, <laughs> Yeah, right? because, and I because, mean— Because, I mean, the people before them, the boomers, are even worse statistically on
2: right, far. and uh, except for when they were young and they were hippies. Right, right. Um, because there's a life stage—there's a generational thing and a life stage thing, and those are two totally different things. Yes. But, yes, young people tend to be more inclusive and progressive than— Older people. Yes. All right. Well, we have apologies for the ageism. (laughs) (laughs) It was it was a
0: factual observation. Nothing (laughs) ageist about it. All right. Uh, Because every Gen X listener of this show is an outlier because they're listening to me. Bunch of weirdos. Bunch of weirdos. All right. Well, we have to take a short break, but when we come back, we are going to dive into the difference between an influencer and a celebrity, and we have so much more to ask Meredith. So stay tuned. Welcome back. Our guest today is Meredith Levine. There's Jake. Hi. There he is. Meredith is a anthropologist, and we've been deep diving on what that even means, because it's such an exciting, interesting field of study. We have so many questions. Uh, The next being, what is the relationship that influencers have with their fans versus the relationship that celebrities have with their fans?
2: So... We're we're in an influencer economy. Obviously, you're listening to a podcast right now. Um, ah. But influencers tend to have these things called parasocial relationships, where part of their appeal is you get to know them through a lot of content that they make and produce and distribute on their own. And as a result, you wind up with an audience that knows a lot more about an influencer than the influencer could ever possibly know about their audience. And that influencer is giving away a lot of that information a lot of the time and I know nothing through th- about that. <laughs> um, and through that regular sustained content of self-producing, you wind up with an audience that feels a lot more like a friend or feels like like an influencer is more of a friend than an unapproachable celebrity. If you were to have, you know, Jenna Marbles and Beyonce in the same room, you would have a lot of people going up to Jenna Marbles asking for a hug and saying <laughs> because it's it's a different level of approachability. They and it's feel a different that level.
1: connection's personal, right? Right.
2: There's a personal connection where, like, you would go up to someone in Target and be like, hey, how is your something-something that you just talked about in your vlog last week? Um,
1: That's and- so interesting how that – because now that I think about it, I'm going through the influencers that, I, that I'm a fan of in my head. I'm like, oh, I guess I would – Feel comfortable talking to those people more than
0: John Favreau and John Lovett, Tommy Vitor, Dan sure, Favreau, like all you my best Sure, like you
1: could drop into those conversations, right, Becca? As I opposed do. to. I was
0: shouting out Pod Save America, my favorite podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, that's so interesting. By this standard, if you knew this going into it, who would ever want to be a celebrity in those contexts?
2: <laughs> I mean, you, you wind up with a lot of trade offs in either of them because one, you get universally recognized of everywhere you go for your work Mm. and that's another big distinction is like celebrities are often separated from their work like Taylor Swift I mean she's she has more influencer tendencies than a lot of celebrities do but people are tend to be a fan of her work more so than like I mean, her cats are pretty famous, too. So she, a but her
1: music influencer. is bigger than necessarily just her, as the, right. I get what you're saying. yeah. Right. like
2: Amy Adams. right. I don't know anything about her as a person, but I love her acting. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so you wind up with that differentiation versus um, if you watch, you know, YouTubers, it may feel like you know them. And I, I know a lot of YouTubers, so I, I know them. But when I ever go into, like, a studio office, like this one or, like, BuzzFeed or something... I forget that some people in that office I know in real life and then other people in that office I've only ever seen in video. Yeah, I did and that. I'm like, wait, no, I can't have I can't transition this conversation because there hasn't been an introduction yet, despite the fact that like I feel like I know you. Right. Um and so those lines get really, really blurred um because of that feeling like you know somebody, even if you don't.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess it depends on how Uh, how private of a person you are some celebrities may much prefer that and some influencers may think that sounds terrible for people to not want to come up to me Mm
2: -hmm. right and part of it also depends on if you're building your business off of a personal brand or you're building your business off of um off of a craft so like you wind up with the like building youtubers who like make prop replicas or or de-rust ancient weaponry or whatever they're doing and so that's a lot more of like a skill based thing where they're known for what they do what they do not necessarily who they are Mm -hmm. because in some fields you can separate out what you do from who you are Mm. yeah so there's a I Gradients. love that
0: idea uh, that you were talking about. Of <laughs> You didn't say the reverse part of it. So, a celebrity is known for their craft and it, they're valued by their work. Versus, the other side of that is that an influencer can do a whole bunch of mediocre work, but you love them as the person. So it kind of they're elevated above the work. They <laughs> I don't do. think
1: there's a judgment on saying if their work's it. good or not. She's yeah. just saying they're known for right. they're known their for some, influence. They're it known
2: could be for great. something else. They're known for their relationship with their audience. Yes. Not the work that they do. And the reality is the monetiz- like what's being monetized is the relationship in either case. It's just When you're an influencer, and I hate that word because that word is basically making a career call based on a monetization model, not necessarily like what is being made. So creators call themselves creators, but when you're talking to advertisers and in the business world, it's often influencers. Anyhow, um, that monetization model is the same. It's just when you are an influencer uh, or a creator, you are doing the writing, directing, producing, editing, distribution all on your own, and so you're much closer to your audience than being, I'm going to do some air quotes here for those of you who are listening, quote unquote, talent, which means you show up, you do your thing, and then everything else gets handled by other people. And granted, everything is a team sport, like there are audio engineers and mixers and shout out to the people in the booth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But um, that process is much more truncated. So creators and influencers are much closer to their audience than going through layers of editors and mixers and SFX artists and makeup artists and like all of the other people who are involved. Because if you were an editor or a special effects artist on Avengers, your work is really important in that contribution to the fandom. But no one's going to stop you in Target to say, I loved your work on the Avengers. Yeah. Also, Brie Larson's not going to Target anymore. (laughs) (laughs) She's probably Uh, post-mating and getting everything delivered. Yeah, probably. For a
0: second, I pictured her driving the postman, and then I was like, "What? Oh, yeah, no, yeah, no that's
2: just yeah, yeah." <laughs>
0: uh, Should we talk about the cult thing?
2: Sure.
0: <laughs> okay. Where is the line between <laughs> fandom and cultdom? This is Jake's question. So
2: Jake, <laughs> well, elaborate. I, mean, I stole it from so, you. I stole your question. So I'm pretty sure that cults have some hard line rules as far as defining them to be cults. One Mine is does. like forcing separation between you and the people yeah. you love who are non-members. And the other has to do with, like, devotion and dedication of resources towards the communal cause. So, so yeah. So, I mean, those are the
1: big ones, obviously. But, like, I'm talking about where the border is a little bit. So, there's obviously some clear-cut ones. Like, you know, it requires obedience or anything like that. um, Or, like, monetary requirements or whatever. What I'm talking about— Oh, go ahead.
0: I expect people to listen to this podcast and obey.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Or just question your beliefs. Um Mm. But what I want to know is like where it, you are, your own time and your own lifestyle starts to revolve around your fandom. And maybe your life choices are defined by your fandom. Ooh. Or that's, I'm just that's interested just, in, where mean, in where fandom, one starts to take over the other.
2: I think often if those are choices as opposed to coercion, mm. like it's, it's hmm. what's the difference between good and evil. I think it's fine if you have. You know, if you're the kind of person who lives by the code of the Jedi, <laughs> and that is your moral framework, and that's fine. Is um, everybody
1: who's coerced into something not making a choice as well?
2: Y- yes. Yes. That's but by the definition. By definition,
1: coercion. being coer—right. But by definition, being coerced is—is is you didn't have a choice in it, right?
2: Someone was was tricking or manipulating you, you into, into doing, doing something. that, right?
1: But then can can there be cults that aren't coercing people even if they're based on true information
0: well then you have the second
2: bullet point which was that you have to you have to give something back right you're donating your resources and your time and your life into this Mm -hmm. organization um that is demanding it from you like most people who have really active lives in fandom it's not being demanded and they could stop when they want it or transition it to somebody else and and have community support in what they're doing and can build their own networks of, of support and health and reach people outside of it. It's not like they stop seeing their friends and family if their friends and family aren't fans of what they're fans of. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Fair enough. Okay, so not a cult. Not a belt. <laughs> um,
0: to, to pivot that question Is there a point when, in your research, you've come across
2: fandoms that have become unhealthy? Is that a thing? There's a big difference between being a cult and having schisms or toxicity in a fandom. Big, big, big difference. Because one is a difference of opinion and morality that is clashing, um, and the other is... Something that is, by and large, not good for humanity, i.e., a cult and fandom. And cults are not the same thing, but there are toxicity. There is toxicity in fandom, and that comes down to the the very human experience of fandoms are bigger than the amount of people that we can personally know. Mm. And when you exceed the amount of people that a community can personally know and trust, there are often lines divided in the sand of so- on some ideological marker or Or function or whatever that will split a community Mm -hmm. and then when you have that community split that's not necessarily unamicable sometimes it's amicable but sometimes you wind up with other lines being drawn that are less amicable um, where you have the these new Marvel movies were made for me because I am a woman camp um, and it's okay if they weren't made for you because you had an entire history of of superhero movies being made for you for the last you know forever 50 to 60 years yeah um like those two camps are pff, have some friction there because there's the well well I'm seeing myself being represented less and the I'm seeing myself yeah, being represented more yeah as as seen as competing objectives, and yet the release yet schedule is still <laughs> on track for white males. <laughs> um, and not to like totally knock knock down like that section of the world or the audience, just to say that that when those feel like they're in friction instead of in harmony, you can wind up with with a lot of tension because fandom is a marker of identity, and when I see someone wearing Harry Potter merch I'm making a political assumption about them right very clearly and if I'm wrong I'm wondering wait <laughs> who let you in our club <laughs> or like how how did you find this and what <laughs> what about this is speaking to you yeah is really the question I have is like what about this is speaking to you if you're not, seeing what I'm seeing and there's a concept in a lot of blockbuster film called left cycles and right cycles in that there are storylines and and subplots and themes that can be read in either side Ooh. and in either direction mm-hmm. like the Colbert
0: rapport
2: yes yeah, so, so, or like um like Star Wars is a really good example of this because it's a western and so with a lot of that like western structure you wind up with a lot of traditional ideology and traditional hero's journey narratives and stuff like that baked in but then you overlay science fiction which is a setting and oftentimes comes along with the like Star Trekian infinite diversity, infinite combinations of like that being represented and like aliens and non-human entities often being representative of the other and the way that they're like treated in certain universes and so you wind up with two different ways to read the same story but there are some stories where you're just like, wait, how did you how did you find this and why do you like this if we're not sharing values? Right. It okay, what you're talking about makes me think of a big
0: leap I made, which I'm sure someone else has already made, that um, fandoms are the new religion. Because religion was created, there was a researcher, and I don't remember his name, but he's been on a podcast I've listened to, that studies the way that um, religion used to influence when you can't know everyone in your society. It helps to have these defining factors, and if you fear the same God, then you must have the same moral structure, and therefore I can trust you in my society. And Fandom is the evolved version of that, that, okay, well, I know that if you are a fan of Harry Potter, then you probably have the same moral alignment than I do, and we're in the
2: same monkey spirit. There you go. Oh, (laughs) yeah. yeah, Figured it out. Because you need need proxies. You need proxies for, for trust when you're living in a really densely packed world with lots of strangers in it. Um, and that, I mean, that speaks to a lot of the urban-rural divide as well, is there are a lot of proxies for trust when you live in a city because you're just exposed to a lot more people, whereas if you are in the town you grew up in and it's a small town and you've never left, you can know everybody. And so those proxies for trust don't necessarily need to exist because there's actual literal trust. And without those proxies for trust, it's harder to figure out who to trust as someone who's not from your community because those proxies haven't been built in and those cultural signals aren't there and we're culturally signaling all the time with absolutely everything we do um and so to be able to read and interpret those signals is also really important when building trust and rapport with people and sometimes shared fandom so some people would say, you know, fandom and religion aren't alike because religion is often also tackling like metaphysical concepts like what happens when you die or like morality. I would say that fandom has a morality play in it also and you don't need religion for morality. You can have a lot of things that structure around morality. But yeah, we fandom isn't always talking about the metaphysical of like what happens when you die or why are we here? Like, Mm -hmm. religion tries to answer some of those big questions where fandom doesn't necessarily try and answer some of those big questions. But functionally, yeah, as far as building groups and social structures of trust and and sameness, fandom can do that. Yeah, totally. But if you don't know, then you may have to
0: improvise, which segues into the type of game we want to talk about. (laughs) Yes. So uh, you're a fan of what I'm gonna call or you have yeah. called uh, write a thing on a slip of paper and put it in a hat games. I love write a thing on a slip <laughs> of
2: paper and put it in a hat game. <laughs> I was known genre. I was a theater nerd, does it show? We're <laughs> also theater and yeah, we play lines from a
0: hat. Sure yeah. Sure. Uh, now, I want to talk about uh, let's see, where I grew up, we called this game Pimp Cup. <laughs> but a lot of people know it as... When
1: I was in kindergarten, yeah. we called it Pimp Cup. We played cup.
0: Pimp Cup in kindergarten. A lot of people call it celebrity. And there's mm-hmm. recently been a published version called Time's Up, which I think was right before, uh, you know, Hollywood decided to mm-hmm. take that hashtag. To
2: back. <laughs> yeah.
0: And this is, tell me if you know this game, Three Rounds. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's all I had to
2: say. Done. Three Rounds. You go, because, you tell. Well, well, because you have... if. Well, the universal first round is, uh, or at least uh, one of the rounds is straight up charades. Right. Mm-hmm. But I love this game, and I've played this game at like conferences. I've played this game at sleepovers. I love this game where you have people contribute slips of paper into uh, into the pimp cup and or the hat or the whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um. I well, We played with a big bowl. bejeweled goblet. Gotcha. Yeah. Some people play with like popcorn or salad bowls or whatever. Whatever you have into the receptacle, and then. The pimp receptacle. <laughs> the pimp receptacle. And uh, and so you write whatever it is, and it can be a whatever. Uh, some people have parameters for whatever so, is it you put in. celebrities? It can be a celebrity. It has to be something everyone knows. It can be Santa Claus. Yeah, it, it has can to be, be common, right? uh, It can be the New Yorker magazine. Right. It can be whatever. We got uh, one of my favorites that ended up being a great inside joke were jelly pens. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. jelly shoes. Yeah, those are like Ooh. some generational items yes. there. Yes, but round one is like a taboo situation where you can say the thing, but like not the thing. Thing you can talk everything around but, it. it, but what's
0: written on the right. slip
2: or any of the like broken component parts of, of what's on the slip. Um, so you talk around the idea, and then you put everything back, and then you have one word to uh, to judge the idea. And go around again. But everyone's already heard everything that's in the hat. So it should, in theory, be easier. So magazine. The New Yorker. Right. Yeah. Right. Or or like writing. Jelly pens. Obviously. Um, And so you wind up with that round. And then the last round is strictly charades. No sound effects. No talking. But you've already heard these things twice. And so in theory, it should be easier. But how's somebody going to do, you know, New Yorker magazine without having all of those rounds of right. in jokes. Right. It's all about the in jokes. It's all about the in jokes. Yes. Because at that point, you have like all of the conversation to draw on if your item happens to be particularly You've challenging. You created or a new you, context
1: right. for that thing. Even though everybody has a shared context for a celebrity like the New Yorker, you had some in joke that you created right. the first two rounds. Or
2: like Keanu Reeves or whatever. Sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking about the last time I played this with family. I play this game a lot with friends, but with family, I played with my cousin Alejo, and Alejo just wrote obscure 1950s baseball players no one had heard of with <laughs> uh, uh, foreign sounding names. And then my aunt, Kate, she uh, she was the only um, person of the parents' generation to be playing this game with all the, me and my cousins, and Kate goes up, she goes, I'm not gonna know any of these, as she's chewing her Nicorette gum furiously as she does and has for 30 years, and um, (laughs) she pulls the, we start the timer, she pulls the first name out of the hat, she goes, I don't know that, throws it on the ground. Grabs another, I don't know this, throws it on the ground. I don't know this, throws it on the ground. It was the funniest thing that's ever happened to me, because she did it to the entire bowl.
1: What? (laughs) No. As we were
0: yelling, only throw them on the ground if you get it right, otherwise put it back in the bowl. And so her son is running around, picking him up, (laughs) putting him back in the bowl, and she's yelling, I don't know this. (laughs) Anyway, that's the visual uh, that came in my head, where I just started laughing to myself myself, and I had to explain why I was doing that. Well, I
2: think that's really a fascinating thing about like the play the player games, is it forces you to have a lot of empathy about the people around you. Yeah. Like, you have to acknowledge, like when I'm playing with friends, it's like, oh, we're almost all of the same age. A lot of us grew up in cities. We have a lot of the same cultural references. Like, it'll be fine. But playing with people who you barely know or who are way older or way younger, it forces you to think about what are these people actually going to know that everybody else will also know.
1: That's a slam on Gen Xers, right? Nice. High five. Yeah. Nice. Good Stupid job. Gen Xers. Yeah. Stupid. Good point, so Meredith. Stupid. Good point.
2: <laughs> Andrew I mean, Reducer points him <laughs> <once> to himself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of shared cultural references, like, across the board. But if I were to do, like... Um, like beach blanket bingo. That's a reference <laughs> that my parents will get. Sure. That any that people my age will barely understand, and it's a family in joke because we know people who were in it. But like, um, wait, what is this? Is this a movie? Oh, this is a series of movies <gasps> hosted by. I think his name is Frankie Avalon. Oh yeah, mm. and um, he yep. had a cameo in um Full House. That's why I
0: know who that is. Okay,
2: <laughs> so it's the series of like like beach cheesy beach movies like oh god what was uh like like that season yes yeah, yeah. yes just like that and <laughs> just it's like clearly
1: that. parts of it are clearly on a set that's like looks like a beach right, right? And are you of, family
2: um, members in this film we know series? we know someone who was in it um oh my, my family grew up in l.a or at least my dad's side of the family is an ally, and so we we know some people who were in it. But so, but we know. But again, if I were to put that in the hat for for you, again, you'd have like a what is this? But only in the first round. That's right. The
0: beauty of this game, you can bring together cultural references from everyone who's playing, from disparate walks of life or generations. And this game is particularly suited, whatever you want to call it, to bring those people to talk and laugh about all these things. Unless you are my cousin Lay, who ju- who just put in. Obscure Japanese names of 1950s baseball players. Oh,
1: Japanese, even harder. Even harder. <laughs> <So it was, laughs> fi- yeah, Japanese it was like, players from the
0: 50s. Beach blanket bingo.
2: <laughs> you could at least sound out the component those parts. Yeah, <laughs> you could at least act out those component parts. <laughs> I can. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Jeez, but that intergenerational thing, I think, is like a really big perk of board games. I was uh, visiting my mother and some of her side of the family, and I have co- I, I have cousins. My My father was the youngest of three. My father is eight years older than my mother. My mother is the oldest of three. And so my first cousins are 15 years older than me and 15 years younger than me. Oh, no. You were stuck in the middle. I have a sister, so we we had each other. We were both stuck in the middle. Um, We are both stuck in the middle, but I was playing with my younger cousins. And we were playing apples to apples, actually. So different game, different mechanic. But that intergenerational thing was still a thing to think about because... I grew when they were born, I was in high school and then I went off to college and didn't really see them. And now that they're teenagers and like approaching their teenage years, like early teenagers, 12, 13 years old. Um, we came back and hung out with them and I'm like, oh man, like this is a play the player game and I don't actually know them that well. But, like, through playing, it was easy to suss out where their humor was when they were like, oh, that was the card that I put in and I thought it was really funny, or I have no idea who this is. Like, in understanding the way that they were playing, it became a lot easier to understand how to play to them. And because it's such a play-the-player game of matching humor and relating via humor, it was a lot easier to kind of get to know their values and frameworks based on what they find funny, based on how they were playing. Absolutely. Which, like, I wouldn't have been able to do had they not been old enough to play and understand it, and I also wouldn't have had the opportunity to do because because of that generational gap.
1: Don't you find that humor is, like, one of the best ways to relate to a person, in a way?
2: Absolutely. And I think that a lot of the, like, party-style games really rely on humor because... That's Like, if you're our age, it's great to do at a party over some adult beverages. Um, But, like, even as kids, that humor is still a relatable thing and a way to break ice. Well,
1: because play in general, like, lowers our barriers a lot. Like, Mm -hmm. we tend to get a little less... uh, insecure a little bit we tend to open up and trust each other a little bit more and forget those boundaries and so people open up themselves and actually take a little bit of risks right in games and in like improv yeah Mm -hmm.
2: absolutely in in theater games and in tabletop games and when you're able to relate to other people and have those laughing moments and you know play is supposed to be fun (laughs) otherwise it would be called work right um and so when you can have that amount of fun over something that is structured enough for everyone to participate like unstructured play can be challenging because like when i was in college and my cousins were like the imaginative play unstructured era of here here are these here are these pictures in their minds that i'm so jealous that they had the ability Mm -hmm. to to play with that i like now struggle i need more structure in order to get into an imaginative place now um like that was a harder bridge to cross, whereas like having the structure of a game that includes humor and is a play the player game is a really great bonding experience in my experience. (laughs) Absolutely, and to have that excuse to let down all of your guards
0: and let your inner child flourish with parameters around it, because that's what we as improvisers and performers are always trying to get back to is that sense of just unbridled play.
2: Yeah. 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 It's great to have fun. Yeah. I wish we had more of it. Well yeah.
0: Well, on that note, it's great to have fun. We hope you guys had fun listening to this podcast. Uh, Meredith, if there's anything that you'd like to shout out, someplace people can read more about your work or the.
2: Uh, more of the world of phanthropology what should they google um probably my name and the word phanthropologist um i'm easily reachable on twitter at meredith jean other than that um i'm not super on the internet because a lot of my research is actually for private companies but i talk every once in a while at places um and i will announce that on my twitter in the event that i'm doing that (laughs) so um you can if you're in la or around la um, you can reach me on Twitter or find out if I'm saying something somewhere via my Twitter. Amazing. Right on. Meredith Levine, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Jake,
0: thanks for being here.
1: Becca, thanks for having me.
0: And thanks to you at home or in your car or wherever you are listening to this podcast. Please subscribe and like and share and rate it and tell your friends to listen to Victory Points. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>